Is democracy broken? Well, duh. But how broken is it, and what are we going to do about it? Today on The Lighter Side. Welcome back. As you know, it's election season again, and just about everyone with a pulse is frustrated right now at the lies, backpedals, mysteries, and overreactions that absorb our world right now. Today, we want to discuss big, or dare I say, radical solutions to our country's growing political divide and overall dumpster fire. How can a country save democracy in a world where everyone is an expert on everything? How do we select a candidate we can be proud of to call our president when we can't find one anywhere? How involved should uninformed citizens be in determining their leaders? Today, we're going to discuss possible solutions or answers to these questions. Our first one, and perhaps the strangest, was recently made noteworthy on Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History. He posited that a democracy would be better off selecting for their leaders almost at random as compared to a formalized election process. The podcast looked into election lotteries, which are just as they sound. Candidates are chosen via a random lottery and are asked to govern for a specific term length until the next lottery is drawn. As radical as that might sound, I think we can all agree that we saw just how radical our own popularized form of democracy, democracy can get during the first presidential debate. So my first question today, Josh, is despite the fact that, sure, this would take decades to catch on and there would obviously need to be some regulation on who could enter the lottery and what qualifications someone would need, why would a country legitimately consider adopting a lottery system compared to a popular vote or electoral system? Yeah, so um, my I have three big pros uh, right off the bat that just for me personally solve my biggest issues with our current system. And and uh, the first one is that regular people would be able to get in office. I, I think that's a huge problem that we've had throughout the history of the U.S. And, and I mean, it's, it's a central issue with any democracy is that you either need name exposure or money. And in all likelihood, you need both and a lot of both. So that... Uh, that really would be huge, in my opinion, that people who know what it's like to be a normal American are now in positions of power. So that's that's a huge benefit, I think. Second one, um, to me, would be you would eliminate traditional campaigning and financing. Two other, uh, what I feel are really big problems um, in our current system, you know, you have to when you campaign, you have to make people like you, and, and that's not necessarily a good thing. You have to make compromises in what you believe. You have to say what people want to hear versus what either A, needs to be said, or B, what you want to say, or both. And then the financing half of that, I think, is pretty pretty straightforward. The fact that, you know, to get a position of power in this country right now, you have to come up with money. And to come up with money, you, again, have to make compromises, have to make promises to people have to do stuff that aren't exactly democratic. And then my third huge one is that you avoid, this helps us avoid strict party lines, right? I can run for office and take office with a variety of opinions, which you can't have right now if you want to get into politics. You know, if I want to run as a Democrat, I have to check all the Democratic boxes if I want to be elected to a position. And same thing if you run for a Republican, you have to check certain 
box is or else you can't get there, which makes it very hard to work across the aisle when we are only electing people who have strict party line beliefs. This would allow us to have more people in government whose beliefs cross over party lines. Right, and those are not even the only positives to this system. I mean, it eliminates elections, as you say, absolutely, but it also then de-incentivizes people with selfish motives of entering the political space at all. You know, why would you put your name uh, in, you know, the ring for just a half a chance to possibly maybe be an elected official? Uh, you know, if you're if you're really just in it for selfish motives, you totally de-incentivize any selfish gains in a political space. So you would pursue those selfish interests elsewhere. Um, it tackles the term length issues as well. So my biggest issue with term length if you, term length issues is not actually the uh, senators who never leave from these random states. I mean, that's a huge problem and the lottery would solve that problem as well. Right. But it also solves the issue of once you're elected, spending all your time, energy, and resources trying to get elected again. That, that no longer happens. Day one, if you were to get selected for the lottery, all you care about is helping to fix a problem for the length of time that you were there. Um, because you know, very quickly you're going to be gone and the odds of being selected again for that lottery are literally one in millions. Um, and one other thing that the actual podcast got into um, is that it creates a more representative uh, government. So both financially and ethnically. Josh hit on the finances that a regular Joe Schmo um, or Jane Schnein, is that what it is? Joe Schmo and Jane Schnein? Um, they, they actually have the potential to get elected, but then also, you know, we have such a large um, Hispanic population and, you know, African American population that has never been properly represented in our government. And at a total random, you know, um, lottery, we would mathematically over time see an exact representation of the you know, our actual country's demographic. Right, right. And to really, to, to articulate what that means, if you really think about it, when you look at Republican candidates who get elected, you're looking at people who are, quote-unquote, for the working man, for the everyday man, trying to boost the economy, and yet it's the candidates in that field are almost always millionaire businessmen that, that you that presumably have the same thing in mind, but that's not necessarily true. And the same thing on the Democratic side, they're supposedly representing minority, you know, uh, underrepresented populations, but at the same time, it's mostly, you know, you've got a lot of lawyers with hero complexes, essentially. Right. And so you, that's, that's kind of what he's meaning in terms of, you know, represent, truly, truly representing those populations. Uh, instead of just theoretically representing them. Yeah, and for what it's worth, if I would encourage everyone to listen to all of season five of Revisionist History by Malcolm Gladwell, but to specifically listen to this episode. And, um, you know, what it also talks about, and I think is really interesting, is when these groups got together. So what Malcolm Gladwell did was he sampled um, different schools across the world, actually, who have started to adopt this on how to elect their student councils. And I know that's a very small sampling size. It is when you're talking about changing your entire form of government. But what the sample sizes gave him was evidence that when you put people together who come from all sorts of different backgrounds and they begin to discuss possible solutions to problems, they start 
with the most important problems. Because it's not that hard when you get a group of reasonable people together and you start to talk about how some people don't have food or don't have any access to clean water, like some of these real serious issues, unilaterally, everybody's like, oh yeah, let's solve those problems first because those sound like extremely serious things. But in our current system, with so many different lobby groups, so many different self-interests, you know, we, we adopt this premise where I'll solve, I'll solve, you know, my problems over here. The Republican Party tries to solve what it seems to be problems. The Democratic Party sees, tries to solve what it seems to be problems or it sees to be problems. And the truth is, if you got 10 reasonable people together in a room, they would all agree that people who are not getting their basic needs met is probably the most serious thing that we would need to solve. So that's another thing that Malcolm Gladwell discovered when um, doing the podcast, doing his that episode. It was just really interesting. And I mean, in general, I think if you if you randomly put a group of people together, you know, they're not going to just outright say, hell, I, I stand for pure Republican beliefs. If you just grab any person off the street and just say, hey, work with these people, you're not labeling these people. These people didn't have to run on tickets. They didn't have an R or a D next to their name. They were just thrown into this group. People are just going to naturally, to some degree, work together. Does that mean they will agree on everything? We are not positing that that is the case at all. They will, there will absolutely be disagreements, but you don't, you're not going to feel confined and nobody is going to feel obligated to serve one particular agenda like the political system that we currently have. Right, so we're 10 minutes in now and I'm starting to fear that our, that our audience is probably thinking, okay, they just came up with a random solution that I've never heard of to, to totally reforming our government and they've ran with it for almost eight <laughs> minutes now. So let's slow down for a second and let's actually start to name the problems that, that we currently have um, then maybe start to think about some problems that could be in this lottery idea, right? So wait, you're saying there are problems with completely randomly selecting people and throwing yeah, them yeah, yeah. Power. I'm not sure it would work a hundred percent of That's the time. Ridiculous. You're gonna have to back that statement off. So you know, we we don't think we've cracked the case on what we should do tomorrow to reform the United States of America. <clears throat> Um, but is there enough of a problem? Because because everyone is complaining right now, and everyone has been complaining for the last four years, you know, do we, are we just getting older and more angry or <laughs> is there actually a legitimate need for big style reform in our country? Right. I mean, first of all, I think those are two different questions. Um, I mean, I, I think that, I think it's meaning we're definitely <laughs> getting older and more angry. <laughs> right. Right. That one is for sure true. Um, but I think in general, uh, it's kind of undeniable especially if you watched I mean if you're a part of social media if you have if you are somebody who has political discussions with other people and if you are somebody who watched our first 2020 and possibly only we don't know our first 2020 presidential debate at the point of recording this we do know that the second debate has been canceled right so yeah um, <laughs> but I think it's you can't really deny that we are seeing some kind of regression in, in, in terms of our discourse, in terms of how we feel about the system at the very least. You know, we can have an argument on is the system itself actually getting worse or are we just, is, is, are the problems becoming more and more pronounced? Is, is, are we having more and more of a disagreement on that? Well, so when we were doing a little bit of prep work for this, you brought up the point that you actually think past elections going back clear to you know Lincoln and even before, that was even more of a popular vote 
than, than we have now. So it's almost like, okay, let's say, I'm sorry, popular, but like popularity contest. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So older elections were even more of a popularity contest was the point you were making. And if we almost work, you know, backwards to forwards, you know, the way time normally works and, you know, we come up to social media and we come to the world. Was this just, was this kind of like the wick of a bomb that was just waiting to build until we got to a point where we had social media? Um, or, or does maybe social media in some sense change that because everyone, everyone becomes maybe an expert on things. They can call people out more specifically. I mean, where's your thought on that? I was interested just to hear you say that previous elections were more of a popularity contest because I think if you pull anyone on the street, they're going to tell you that right now is the most of a, you know, the biggest popularity contest uh, we've ever seen for an election. Right. And I, 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 that's not what I'm seeing. That's, that's not what, my opinion is at all, honestly. I, I do think that older elections were bigger popularity contests, and obviously I'm speaking on what I know about history. Obviously, I don't have personal experience with any of this, and very little people you alive. You did not vote for Millard Fillmore? I was not a Fillmore fan, but... Fillmoreian, I think I is was, what they call themselves. Right, I was all about FDR. Um, now, uh, what I, I mean... I think by the nature of what media used to be in terms of you'd see a picture, you'd see a couple speeches, it's not like we had nationally broadcasted debates, it's not like presidents had an outlet that every single time they had an opinion they could address it, rebuttal, that stuff was very difficult. You could put out a one-sided plan, people could read your one-sided plan, but the vast amount was just your picture and a snippet of you in a newspaper. If I didn't take the action to read all your material, and to go see all your speeches, which I mean, you couldn't go see all the speeches because they were all in person. And to go see those speeches would have been to, you know, at multiple places would have been quite difficult. So you kind of lead, you, you, you kind of ran, ran on your basic background, you know, military guy, uh, you know, social guy, and honestly what you looked like. And I think that was a huge part of it. And I can kind of see what you mean today in terms of, you know, now you have social media exposure and what you look like on that. But I think the, what you believe and your rhetoric are so, so much more easily accessible right now that I think that there is honestly more judgment on people based on their political opinions now than ever before. And that, that's, it may be a hard time to say that during this particular election, but I think as a general rule, that's true. We know where, I mean, we roughly know where Donald Trump stands at all times because he tweets roughly 10 to 20 times per day. Boy, there's a lot to unpack there. So let's maybe, just for our audience's sanity, leave the discussion on previous elections because I, I'm interested in that. I would love to read a, you know, some historian's work on that because we don't have a great sense of how connected the average citizens felt in 1888 um, about a particular election. But what I am interested in what you're getting at is that that notion of social media, that notion of constantly being aware of where your candidates stand, you know, because I think we're going to get into a really interesting conversation here in a second about um, about the role of a citizen, the role of a citizen's perspective on their government in determining what the government should actually do, 
right? So you're right. We do have a ton of people right now aware of Donald Trump's platform because he tweets so much. A lot of people trying to fact check the president every second, trying to fact check the, um, you know, vice president Biden every second. Is that, you know, you've just agreed that we, we have a, you know, that, sorry. What I'm saying is you've agreed with me that maybe there's an issue needing to be solved, but almost that sounds like the perfect solution, right? Is everyone being able to fact check everybody at all times, you know, just like Zuckerberg and some of these big CEOs thought technology would be for us back in the day. But it, we, we clearly know it's not going down that path. Right. So, you know, is that leading to more problems where people feel they're informed and actually have no conception on, on what, you know, how, how their particular opinion affects the legislation and, and, you know, progress and trajectory of the government, I guess. Right, right. I mean, it, what I think what you're alluding to is is essentially... What am I alluding to? Right. I have no so idea what I'm talking I'm, about. I'm going to try to piece this together Yeah, yeah, yeah. Piece you. that. I, I'm, I'm going to say you're kind of questioning the contradiction we currently are living in, in which we should have the most informed U.S. population that we ever have had before. Transparent, too. Right, transparent. Right. Yeah, we should know... Based on today's culture and technology, we should essentially know the vast majority of all of our candidates at all times. It should be easy to know. It should be they should be easy to fact check, and, and all of that. But then the contradiction to that is nobody saw this whole fake news to to use a term I don't like, but is is what people will recognize in this context. Right. We did not see this culture coming either. Right. We've somehow got a culture that. The most information ever is available, and yet that has led to an incredible amount of false information being available. Yeah, and not even always false information, right? So I, I hope everyone has listened to at least one of the million great TED Talks on confirmation bias and somebody's ability to find a survey or a study or one expert somewhere that verifies and proves your own opinion. So I, I think... You know, I don't want to bore our listener with a conversation that they might already be familiar with on how we all we all have all the facts we need right now. I guess what I'm saying is, is that in and of itself enough of an issue for us to need to totally change the way we elect our officials? I think, I think more than anything else, that's what I'm getting at. Is, right, right. is social media so bad that we should literally change the fabric of our government because of it? Well, here's... The way I would f feel about that is essentially by saying, I don't see a solution to the quote-unquote fake news problem, to our, our confirmation bias problem we currently have. If, if, the, if, I could, if, I, if I had heard a theory to fix that problem... You, you mean everyone watching a video that says, hey, please be unbiased. You don't think that's going to that's gonna solve the world? I don't think that's going to solve oh, the world's man. problems. But, you know, check out the lighter side on YouTube if you think that will. Um, <laughs> but essentially, what, what I'm saying is I, I don't see something that will flat out fix that issue. The, the, the uh, issue we currently have with social media. I mean... You, you, you run into the issue where if you go by all these, you know, the government is trying to kind of force Facebook to crack down on fake news and Twitter kind of voluntarily was trying to do some fact checking. But you get into A, problems with free speech, and you get into B, problems with there's just too much information for Facebook and Twitter to do that. It's not possible to do it fairly because there's too much out there. Well, 
Right. I think the the solution in both of these cases, uh, or maybe the linkage between the two, the, the solution to the problem they both create, is has to be in manipulating the incentives of these companies, right? So, so right now, and again, I'm, I'm going to say some things the audience already knows, but right now, Google, Facebook, and the like are incentivized to let the public's imagination on facts just wander, right? right? There is an actual in financial incentive in these corporations to have fake news be completely and totally rampant. And flagging a couple of tweets, flagging a couple of messages as being fake news is obviously not going to get the job done. We need major financial and governmental incentives um, for these companies to really change ship. And there's some great documentaries on that, The Social Dilemma on Netflix. Anyone can watch it anytime. We are certainly not experts on that. We are just citizens trying to think of um, a better system for our country. And I think that in terms of uh, incentives, I think that's what's so fascinating about the lottery system is what Malcolm Gladwell did was he found a system that someone was using somewhere where the incentives were completely pure the whole way through, right? right? You build a system because we're human beings. We are, we are inclined to cheat if we can get away with it. So you design a government that functions, um, that, that really its primary function is to check itself at all times, to, to basically make sure that, you know, the system itself isn't, isn't broken. Um, right. And I mean, the, uh, we definitely, you know, the founding fathers intentionally were trying to design a system that checked itself, obviously. I mean, checks and balances was, you know, civics 101. We all learned that in, uh, in government class, history class, whatever, whatever you call the class, we all learned it. And, you know, I, there are pros and cons to the system, and you know we're simply talking about the fact that there might be a system that does that exact thing a little bit better, and 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 like Jared said, has a little bit pure motives to it, because while the motives of the founding fathers definitely started pure, motives kind of devolved pretty quickly on you know in in pieces. Obviously, it wasn't one big wave of all of a sudden nobody cares about anybody anymore. And there are obviously still politicians that run for the right reasons. But the problem is we still have a systematic problem that that is not the general sense that people have. And that's not, you know, we, I mean, I already went over the problems with our current government that this supposedly fixes. So uh, you want to transition into what's some... Yeah, so, so let's get, let's get to the... 1800 pound 1800 pound that's a really that's a really light elephant isn't it i feel like it is i think it's got to be a light it's, elephant it's be a bit yeah. quite so light let's let's talk about the really the trim <laughs> elephant in the room um, that would totally change democracy virtually ruin democracy right, right. in general i mean, I mean you, you, we are no longer electing our officials the, right. the the choice of the american people is virtually gone. And let's make one thing perfectly clear. The mechanics of this thing are a cluster. I mean, we do not know exactly how it would work. If you listen to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, he talks to a really smart group of students um, at one of those like prestigious high schools that you go to before you go to Harvard or Yale. And the students raise some great concerns about it and they try to talk about or manipulate um, a system that, that makes sense. So, so again, we are not saying that this is what America should do 2021. But yeah. You know, I, if you start to entertain ideas like this, you start to realize that you're literally taking 
democracy away from people. And, and is that as bad as it sounds? And if it is as bad as it sounds, how do we solve what is currently there? And if it's not as bad as it sounds, how do we convince people that it's not as bad as it sounds? Right. I mean, I think definitely right off the gate, the biggest criticism you're probably going to get, at least from a philosophical standpoint or from a poli-sci standpoint, is going to be we are no longer have a democracy in that he case. He said poli-sci 11 times before this, and I wanted to punch him every single time. What's wrong with that? I'm I don't know. I don't know. It, just is a, it sounds like a fraternity. Oh, Jesus. So... Uh, that your biggest problem is going to be the fact that it's technically no longer a democracy. I mean, it's it, you've got a lottery republic, you know, you've got a pure republic, essentially. And, and I, I think your first big hurdle is going to be convincing anybody that that's okay. And, and I'm, we're not even sitting here saying that, that that's necessarily okay. Right. But we're also saying, you know, it's not... You, you, this, you, it's not comparable to socialism. We're not going towards that direction. It's not communism. It's, but it's also not democracy. It's, it's, it's a whole different time. Of it's like of a, it's like a pure senatorial republic. Is right. basically what it is. It almost reminds you of some sort of old Greek form of government, yeah. um, which had problems. I mean, the other thing that Malcolm Gladwell didn't get into that I, I the only issue that I can see is I, I work at a place with amazing people. You know, we, you do too. But like staff meetings are the worst things <laughs> in the world, right? I mean, nothing gets done, and it's because everyone has good intentions. But nobody has the time to sit and explain their ideas from their conception to their fruition. I mean, we just do, we just don't have time to do that. So it's it's eleven different people screaming about individual incentives on this, that, and the other thing. How does anything ever get solved? Um, and I think that you often hear that as being an issue with some of those old forms of government, right. which are you know when you get a hundred people sitting in a room just talking about well, what should we do? What shouldn't we do? It's a mess. Right. I mean, the, the, there are, and I would love to kind of delve into this in a future episode, uh, you know, the pros and cons are really deep dive into party politics, right? Because they exist for a reason. We, we I, I slam on them all the time. So do, I think, a lot of people. They hate party politics. They hate partisan politics in general. But there is a reason they exist. And that's one of the many reasons is so that you don't just have a group of 50 people sitting in a room yelling at each other because they all struggle to find common ground. Party politics, you know, the, the team politics, one, one benefit to them is that it kind of naturally aligns you with other people. And that is what will, that, that's what helps get stuff done, theoretically. And, but, it, you know, like I said, I'd like to do a whole episode of this because it also prevents a lot of stuff from getting done, as we've seen in the last decade of you know, the, the Senate and the, and, you know, it's Congress in general. Right. Um, you know, the, the, the one possible benefit that we were talking about before this too was, you know, does it, does it make government adequately boring again? <laughs> like, you know, and I guess this goes back to the social media thing, so we don't need to harp on that angle too much, right. but, you know, we, we're missing the thought that government is hard, that it is service, that people who, you know, choose to, to take that office are, are, should be doing it because they want to see 
real change enacted and they're understanding that it is going to take a lot of time and energy to get those things changed. Mm -hmm. um, and that the public really doesn't need to be all that interested in what they're doing. The public just needs to be satisfied on a day-to-day -day basis that, hey, life is going pretty good right now. Right. Um, you know, so I think maybe let's transition away from things that we don't have as much, uh, you know, experience on. And, and let's just have that conversation about the people in general. Because I think we might disagree on this in a healthy way where... And I'm going to say this as delicately as I can, and I'm putting myself in this position too, is I don't think we're, we being people, are all that good at understanding what we want at all out of our politics. I mean, I swear that, you know, if, if a Democrat were to not have the D on their name and just be elected for, let's say, a full, full two terms, so eight years, and you convinced or, or you told a whole slew of Republicans that that candidate was actually a Republican, they would be completely satisfied with the last eight years as long as they had the means to take care of their family, right? They did not go under, they did not experience any drastic trauma in their lives um, where, where finances were, were really a huge issue or no um, issue came to the Supreme Court where like a law like Roe v. Wade or something was drastically changed. As long as those things didn't happen, people would just frame the success and happiness of their life based on do I have enough money in the bank to, you know, be in control of my life? Because ultimately, that's what 90 some percent of the country cares about on any, any given day of the week. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I think there's definitely some point to that. And, and I think uh, unfortunately, we've had a lot of events in the last, I, I would, you know, quite a bit. It's been a while in U.S. history till since things have been uneventful, you know. We've been off and on at war for practically the last 30 years, almost, uh, in some sort of, you know, combat situation overseas. And we, you know, we, we've been, you know, terrorist attacks... Uh, now pandemic, Every, we just, we seem to always have a big issue that unites people on opposing sides uh, to some degree. But, but I think in general, and, and that, that I think is where, those are those unavoidable situations where you, you can't help but blatantly see the division. But it, I, I definitely see what you're saying on a general day-to-day -day basis. People, eh, people just want to be able to live their lives in a healthy, normal way. Uh, I think, are we too, my question to that would be, are we too far gone from that point? Are people now too invest, are people now so invested in every little issue because of our increasingly political climate, are increasingly divided, our increasingly public political uh, discussions, are we so far gone that that's not even really an achievable goal anymore? Sure, I think taking away, and, and maybe let me be clear, I am talking about taking away some of the citizens, um, citizens basically say in the way their government functions. Um, so yeah, convincing the American people to give that up would be virtually impossible, right? You, nobody, nobody takes that deal. Nobody goes from more control to less control um, voluntarily. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. And, uh, but I think slow, sorry, not to cut you off. I think slowly you could, again, 
change the incentives. And the beautiful thing about changing incentives sometimes is people don't know that it's happening, right? So you could, you could change the incentives to where people maybe felt like it was more of a luxury, right? So I don't have to worry about as much of this stuff as I did before. I think people could get behind an idea like that. No, that's great. Um, you know, but what, what were you going to say? Sorry. No, I, mean, I was essentially saying that, I mean, it, it, it kind of works with that point too, is, is essentially like, I mean, people uh, can kind of be happier to an extent when decisions aren't necessarily on them. And, and, and if you're not, I mean, there, there's quite a litany of scientific research that shows the, the less decisions we have to make in life, the happier we are. Right. The more perceived control we have over our lives, but the less we actually are making each individual decision, the happier people tend to be. And from a more pragmatic standpoint, what I was definitely going to get into is, is the fact that we kind of have a, we don't really have all that much control as much as we, as much as we feel like we do. You know, we are massively underrepresented. Um, the way our system is devised, the areas we live in highly dictate uh, the, the way votes go. There are very few swing areas in the entire country. We... I understand it would be really hard to give up the quote-unquote democratic system we currently have, but I would also make a, I think I could also make a really strong argument that you don't have nearly as much control as you think, and theoretically this lottery system would put in people who actually represent your beliefs almost more so than you are currently able to express them via your vote. Now that it is a lottery system, so you know that may not be true. Somebody may be elected that don't that doesn't represent. But statistically, the chances that somebody does represent your general views versus right now, where your vote goes to somebody who may or may not truly represent your views, who even if they want to represent your views, grew up a millionaire, right. went to Yale University, and is now trying to help because they think helping is nice. Like yeah. that's the best. That's best case scenario. Right. I mean, look look at our. To, I mean, I, I, we'll, let's go real world now, and we'll look at our two current presidential candidates. You have Joe Biden, who supposedly represents blue collar America, and he kind, you know, he didn't grow up too far from that life. You know, he, he didn't grow up filthy rich, but he wasn't exactly. He didn't work in the coal mines himself, you know, right. from it from that kind of area of the country. But he's not personally from that lifestyle. He's not personally from the mines. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Um, and, and to that point, he's also spent the last, you know, nearly 50 years in government. And that's going to, you know, if you spend that in government fighting that fight, even if you believe you're fighting the good fight, you still, you become a warrior more than a public servant. You be, you know, it, we've had major governmental issues with partisanship the last, uh, throw any amount of years you want. It's true. And, uh. He, he's been in that zone, so how much he can truly now think about the American public versus thinking about the agenda he's been working with the past 50 years, uh, I mean, that's incredibly debatable versus somebody who you literally just pulled off the street who wants to help, who is actually maybe from that blue-collar lifestyle, just does, is not just technically sympathetic to it. And then on the other side, you've got Donald Trump, who... It represents everyday America, quote unquote. But I mean, grew up on a brownstone in New York City. Has lived pretty much his entire life in a painted gold uh, penthouse, and has never known anything but millions of dollars in the bank. 
Right. And has really, I mean, let's say, let's say you take best case scenario with Trump and you really paint him as such a shrewd, talented businessman, although there is a lot of evidence <laughs> to suggest otherwise. Please just be open to that fact. Okay. Just be open to the fact that maybe he's not as good of a businessman as Bill Gates. I don't know. Like someone who actually has a lot of money, but <laughs> let's say he even is right. Um, Jeff Bezos probably would have been a better example, but it doesn't matter. Uh, if you want Dr. Evil running the country, yeah. sure. <laughs> so let's say Trump is a, a shrewd, fantastic businessman. That means that he has spent almost his entire life making very large, very calculated, very specific financial and property acquisitions. That does not in any way, shape, or form qualify you to understand what an American who knows for a fact they will never make more than $65,000 a year, it does not make you qualified to speak for that person on behalf of that person. It, it almost makes you the worst possible person right. to speak on behalf of that individual. Right. I mean, if you think about it, somebody who is whose job, and we'll say they're very good at it, has been getting money from people to increase your personal business wealth is that does not translate into running a financial system in, in the in the slightest theoretically and there i mean there's a lot of you know obviously a lot of fiscal conservatives will say that that you know CEOs making the best decisions for themselves translates to the government but there's there's just as much research and argument showing that that's not true as well, well so and then gotta, let's let's also let's get real specific for a second because I mean, I'm maybe not real specific. I'm not an economist, but um, there's been a lot of lot of attention paid at the two debates, and rightfully so, to the economy, as there always is. And there are some honestly fantastic. Uh, the, the, there are some legitimately great statistics to to talk about the Trump economy. I mean, we can we can well, let's not go down a rabbit hole of why that is, because I know you you're pretty informed on that. And you'd like to prove that, you know, he obviously inherited a booming economy at the end of Obama's uh, administration. But, you know, there, there are some great statistics there. But what Kamala Harris, especially during the vice presidential debate, was trying to get uh, Pence to acquiesce to was the job loss. The fact that Biden's economy or the, the economy that Biden theorizes as being the best, and I'm not suggesting this is what I want. I'm just suggesting the differences between their two would be perhaps less financial gain at the top but more people purely employed, I guess. So I'm just saying that there are two, there can be fundamentally different views on a successful economy. Right. And, you know, that's important to keep in mind. Just seeing the most money the country's ever seen does not mean that, again, Joe Schmo and Jane Schnein are uh, seeing the most money of their lives because they might not be working as consistently or as productively as they want to be. Right. Right, right, and so I mean, if if you want to, let's we'll we'll circle back a little bit because uh, we kind of got distracted yeah, we got off, from, we got off track there. got off track from our our point, but essentially, the you run into the same problem uh, to uh, to a certain degree with um, this lottery situation, in which case you know we we are here criticizing that an entrenched politician and a lifetime millionaire who's never lived a real life aren't necessarily qualified to make these decisions. Well, let's let's talk about the counter argument, which is that Joe Schmo off the street is also not qualified to have these discussions. Abs I mean, I don't I don't know about you guys out there, but I wouldn't exactly want my next door neighbor um, to 
you know, make these fine to, to determine what's best for the economy either. Right. No. And, and that really gets at the heart of the issue because you can see instantly how a lottery would work in your local community. How awesome would that be? If, if, if the people in your township or your county or your city were totally selected by lottery, they didn't have to do it if they didn't want to, but they were more than free to, you would see families being served who had never been served before. You would see projects that, you know, uh, parts of the, the city that were run down, you would see them built up and beautified and all this awesome stuff would happen. But then you start to get to the top and you start to look at really complicated decisions in basically two places in our minds, law and economics, right? Mm -hmm. Things that you actually need to be not only qualified for, but fairly intelligent um, to really understand and, and grapple with and, and uh, grasp on a bigger scale. Um, and that really comes back to like the whole Senate conversation with, okay, would we be better off then? Because my argument would be, Joe Schmo, not only are they not qualified to get that job and then execute it properly, but maybe they're not even qualified to be voting for it from home because all they hear are their personal incentives, right? Like, oh, I think that plan is better for me. He, you know, that politician saying it's better for me, so got to vote for that person. So it almost brings back this idea of could you elect the most, just the best of the best by some sort of, you know, different election process as well and then just let them do what they're doing and you know only check up on them by looking at the success of the country i guess like those metrics right right and i, I mean that's definitely uh again we're talking another about... ridiculous idea that would take you know tons of resources and time to build up right and i mean it would it would be an absolute shock to to especially governmental traditionalists you know if, if you if you are it, if you love the founding fathers and you love the constitution and the way we laid down government and you thought it was amazing and revolutionary, these are going to be a shock. All these ideas are going to be a shock to the system. Right. Uh, even if they are theoretically good ideas. And I mean, I personally, we've talked about this, but I'll, I'll state it again in, in this podcast in terms of local elections, you know, County city, whatever I would sign on for the lottery Immediately, right. like I, I have no hesitation because to do that on the local level. Any issues you'd have to work through would be worked through better than what we have now. Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so even the pitfalls would be worth going through to get what you'd get on the end result of that. It's it's at like the state senate level and the federal level that you start to get a little concerned with the idea, and and the and the problems start to become. From, from small problems to this might actually be borderline dangerous at, at some argument. I'm not even necessarily saying it. Like, I, I'm still, like, I, I'm not strongly against this lottery while I'm also not strongly let's implement it right now. But but you can't, once you get to the federal level, you can't ignore the problems with qualifications and education and that type of stuff. Would, would a person a lot smarter than us who can hold more ideas maybe at one time in their head, you know, throw the question out there, how is your county different than the country, right? Would, would, they, would, they, would they be smart enough to be able to look and see, okay, maybe those politicians are not making as many great economic decisions as you think they are. You know, maybe they're just as dumbfounded on how to properly run an economy. You know, maybe, maybe a group of people who were just trying, you know, to solve the biggest problems would almost allow the free market to govern its, regulate itself. I, you know, I don't know. 
Right, right. I mean, you you do that. The, the, there is a decent point to that, which is how truly qualified are the people that are currently in office? You know, and, and I think that that's something that you know, at least in a joking fashion, people make. You know, whether it's you know your your late night TV show host or whether it's Twitter, you're going to find jokes about that constantly. That it, it, America doesn't even necessarily believe the people in charge right now are qualified. Yeah, but we're but. Are they wrong, right? So we're, right. we're no, like, no, no. what's funny about today is we've been talking for 45 minutes and we're, we're actually painting two vividly different pictures of America, right? Mm-hmm. One of which where <clears throat> we are so proud of each of our individual citizens that they would be able to <clears throat> take up this office um, extremely well. And then on the other side, uh, you know, saying, oh my gosh, should we maybe take some choice out of these people's hands? <laughs> right, right. And I think the, the important differentiation here is that this system kind of bets on the fact that people are going to be better, smarter, uh, and care more once they get this opportunity, once they're put in this position of power. You know, compare, compare a person on Twitter to who they are in real life or who they are in a position of power are necessarily not the same things. And I think we're, you're kind of betting on the fact that if this person just stops becoming you know, a Twitter troll and is now, you put them in a position of power, that it's not really one-to-one comparison. You know, that this person may be able to make jokes on Twitter, but then, given the situation, can step up and be a smart, productive member of society. Because, I mean... Most of the people on social media who share this ridiculous stuff or make these ridiculous jokes, tweets, whatever, are reasonable humans in real life. Right. And maybe, maybe it's not too pointless for our audience real quick to just talk about some of the um, <clears throat> regulations that the students and Malcolm Gladwell actually talked about when discussing the lottery. So, you know, so maybe you were out, you're out there listening to this and you're thinking, oh, I have some solutions. I have some solutions. You could do it this way. Maybe you're actually kind of getting into this idea. So one obvious solution that one of the students raised to Malcolm Gladwell was, you know, should they have a certain number of qualifications, whether it's uh, a particular degree they would need to obtain or a particular number of years in some sort of service position. And once they've met those qualifications, they can enter their name into the lottery. And, you know, that way anybody couldn't just throw their name, you know, in and get selected. Um, other things that they talked about was perhaps, you know, never allowing you to, to be part of the, you know, the lottery again. Um, you know, part of it was, what would the financial incentives be? You'd have to pay these people pretty well right. in order to get them to uproot their lives, to be willing to... I mean, there's there's the argument they get paid pretty well right now. I mean, a lot of them take pay cuts, but that's because only wealthy people can get into politics. So I would argue with Joe Schmo, if you or I were to get, were to get one of these elected positions, we, we both don't make nearly what a senator, president, oh, anything. Oh, sure. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, right? I'm saying I, I think in some sense we, we sometimes forget how important paying people well can be right. to them doing a good job. I mean, that, you know, um, so no, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm, I'm simply talking about what they talked about. Right. Um, you know, it, it's certainly a radical idea, which is where we started. So maybe I just want to comment how crazy it is we can spend 48 minutes talking about something that's radical, but it sounds 
so promising by comparison to where we are now. And I just want to say that I think it's only going to get worse. I think it's only going to get worse. Now, maybe let's say Trump loses this election, okay, and Biden gets into office. For those four years, my guess is it will be better because what tends to happen when Democrats are in office, the conservative population, especially in the Midwest, we can comment on this, they just go back to living their lives. They get frustrated with what happens in Washington occasionally when a newsreel pops up. But by and large, they do what conservative people are great at, which is building, maintaining, and loving the communities that they live in. Right. Right. And, you know, the liberal government, and that sounded really negative, derogatory, but I just mean literally that a liberal government with Biden at the helm would try to rebuild some of the social programs that Obama instituted. And we would have a little bit of peace for a while, I think. I, I genuinely think that. No, I know. And I agree. And be, I mean, that, that, that boils down to the point that uh, people who lean liberal tend to be more politically centric because they want to see more political action. And people who lean conservative uh, honestly don't care about it as much. Now, there are t- when times pop up, you know, issues or people like Donald Trump who really rally people uh, who lean conservative. But like, as you said, when, when you don't have that power in the hands of the conservative, Republicans tend to just go on living their lives because like you said, they are very community oriented. They aren't that governmentally oriented. So if they don't have a reason to be invested right that second, they tend to not be as opposed to liberal people who have a higher tendency of really caring about government no matter what. Right. But my point, sorry, was that we might get four to eight years of a little bit of, you know, calm waters. But if nothing changes, what we have seen is that we had, we've had a president for four years, and I think he would borderline agree to this, who has devalued, and he wouldn't word it the way I'm about to word it, but he's devalued what truth is, you know? And I don't think, now that we've opened the lid on that problem, I don't think you can close it without drastic, drastic change. And maybe the, maybe the change comes quickly and it comes in the form of social media, like the government institutes crazy regulations on, on these um, apps. So maybe that ends up being the solution. It's not a governmental change, the structure of the government, I mean. But right. I think that Trump has shown us something that forever needs to be changed. Right. That, you know, we, we've found a problem in our democracy in how open it is that we just absolutely can't let it stay this way. Right, right. And I mean, for anybody who thinks that, that he's purely targeting Trump as this is all Trump's fault, that's not what he's doing. It's as a result of who Trump is as a person. And all the way back, I mean, it, it kind of started with this whole Obama birther scandal where, you know, some millionaire decided to claim for years that the president of the United States wasn't born in America. And, and from there, you know, that personality, that, uh, that kind of radical truth, uh, uh, borderline manipulation, has been carried through all of our media now, social media, and to the point where you know it's definitely not even conservative fault anymore. Liberals did the same thing to target conservative ideals, so it's it's just it's a problem that stemmed from that, and it is a problem that I mean I agree with you, and that's why I am more than willing to have an open discussion about this radical lottery system is that I don't see a solution for this 
societal problem, for this governmental problem, for this uh, information problem that we are now facing. Right, because if you follow the logic of incentives purely through, I mean, at a certain point, you stop blaming people for finding for finding these facts, right? If the fact that the world is, you know, if, if global warming is real, right, changes your thoughts on your religion or your worldview or, or like, or who you think you are as a person fundamentally, of course, you are going to try and find some study that proves global warming is a hoax right. or we don't have enough scientific research to prove that it's real because that is your personage, right. right? Your your identity is linked to something and you can find evidence that you're still right, right. and you're going to do that. And then not to say that's okay, but that is the confirmation bias we are currently dealing with. Exactly. And that, that we, that I mean, the, the, the only other solution is that we overcome that confirmation bias on a personal level or on a systematic level, which... I mean, personal level is not going to happen across 300 million people. Obviously. And, and really 7 billion people, right? This is a right, world I mean, problem. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the way we see this push back to authoritarian leaders across the world right. is scary. I mean, it's always been how authoritarian leaders take power in general is through misinformation and quote-unquote fake news. You know, Hitler's fake news about, and uh, I'm not comparing Trump to Hitler because that's the first thing anybody's going to think when I say that, but... You know, Hitler's first, uh, the way, you know, you do it is by misinforming your people about the world. That's the way the, um, you know, Kim Jong-un did it in North Korea. It's, you were seeing the same thing to some degree with the Communist Party in China. Uh, across the world, obviously it's Putin's whole game. Obviously right. Uh, But I mean, going back through history, you see misinformation is how authoritarian leaders manipulate and take power over their people. So this is a problem that 100, this, this is, I wouldn't put it lightly, the biggest problem we are currently facing in America in general, you know, and that that's an issue that needs solution. And if, if we're calling this a radical problem, it's worth at least discussing radical solutions. And that's, that's what we've been doing today. Absolutely. So, we are almost at an hour here, um, so we're going to wind down. So I think I have a way to maybe, you know, we, we've had a complicated conversation today that's gone in a few different directions, but I think I have a way of maybe framing it for our audience here for a second. What I would like you to get out of this podcast, and I think I'll let Josh maybe comment on what he wants here in a second, but what I would really like to see is you, be, you begin to look for more complicated, more nuanced, stranger even, solutions to our governmental problem. It's so easy on the surface to think the problem is a particular Trump policy or transversely, just how radical it feels like the left is right now. But maybe take two seconds to think, how did the Republicans get so radical? How did the Democrats get so radical? How are we living in this space right now? And maybe what we need are more complicated, more specific solutions to governmental problems. By no means are we saying that a lottery is going to happen. By, you know, well, obviously that, but, but by no means are we even sure it's the best idea. All we're saying is that if we can talk about it for 55 minutes and I can feel like we had a cogent, clear conversation on how that could be beneficial for our country, it's at least worth entertaining some more complicated ideas on how to solve many of our giant issues today. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty much in the same boat. We, we need to 
be open-minded as a country to solutions to these very, very legitimate problems. You know, another four years of Trump does not solve this problem. Joe Biden does not solve this problem. Bernie Sanders does not solve this problem. Mike Pence does not solve this problem. There is not a candidate, there is not a political stance that solves this problem. We have a systemic problem. And it is a, what, what we believe and what I think a lot of people believe, it is a huge radical problem that requires it entertaining, being open-minded, and having discussions on big changes that are not necessarily just down a political, down your, sorry, your particular political stance. Nailed it. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Slam dunk that. So I don't think we could ever say this more honestly in the history of our show. We have absolutely no interest in changing what you think. Just how we all think. Have a great day, everybody.